Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And since the beginning of this year, we have been in a series of messages in the book of Mark. And today is the last time we're going to be in Mark for the rest of this calendar year. (laughs) Shouldn't be so excited to... (laughs) Leviticus, I'm taking requests, okay, Leviticus, <laughs> Deuteronomy, okay, great, maybe I should uh, not be taking requests from the floor for message series. Anyways, uh, we are going to be, since the book of Mark is so long, right, that's the main reason, it's 16 chapters long, we've been going about as fast as we need to go to really sort of get out of Mark what we think that God wants us to get out of it. We could spend more time, we could spend less time, but uh, we've been uh, taking it at a pretty good uh, slow pace here, and so we wanted to give some space, some breathing space, not only for the things that we've been seeing and learning in Mark to kind of just settle, but also we just need some space to um, kind of get into something else for a while. So uh, coming up this fall, we're going to be doing a few different series of messages leading up to the beginning of next year, and then come January, we are going to get back into the book of Mark. And uh, so we will all, Tim, all be excited about that when it comes in January. Uh, But what that means is uh, that this is the last Mark open mic of this sort of season, as it were. Uh, Each week, we have been opening up the floor for you to share what you have been reading and learning in the book of Mark. We say this all the time, but it's important for us to continue to repeat this, is that we believe that God's word is living and active, and that as we spend time reading God's word, and we've asked you to read the book of Mark throughout the week in your um, time with the Lord, uh, we believe that as we continue to read Mark, that God will meet us there, that we will encounter Jesus and we'll be changed by him. And so we want to hear the ways that God is changing you, the things that you're seeing in the text that maybe you've never seen before or you're seeing in fresh ways. We want to know how God is changing you and transforming you and what you're applying and what you're learning. And so we leave just a little bit of space here on Sundays for uh, maybe one or two, maybe three people to uh, sort of share what it is that they're seeing in Mark. And so as always, I will hold on to the mic. I will not hand you the mic, but I will walk around if you raise your hand uh, in about a minute, minute and a half, maybe we'd love to just hear a couple people who are able to share what they're seeing and reading in the book of Mark. Hello. Oh, there I am. Oh, yes. Very loud. Um, It's encouraging to see that um, the disciples finally get it. They they, they seem to have been a little dense, all that Jesus has shown them um, about who he is. And now Peter says, you are the Messiah. But it's also encouraging because I had all this information far more than they had all of my life, and yet it took me until I was 32 to finally accept it and say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. So I can't really fault them for not getting it when I had far more information than they did, and it took me much longer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so good.
What I've noticed is Jesus says so many wonderful things that are going to happen, but whenever he says things that are going to be difficult and hard, we don't want to listen. (laughs) And the thing is, is that uh, when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, it means that we will have difficulties in our life. But as long as he's with us and he's talking to us and we're talking to him, we'll get through. Yeah, Mm. So good. Okay, as we come to this passage today, I want to invite you to join me as we do each week um, by asking God for his presence with us. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. God, we worship you this morning because you have made yourself known to us and you have made yourself available to us. We thank you, God, for not only revealing yourself in the person of Jesus, but also revealing yourself through the written word, through the Bible. And uh, we're just so grateful that we have the chance every single week and often so many times throughout the week to spend time reading the Bible. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, please protect us from taking that for granted. Lord, please protect us from being people who are so inoculated with access to the Bible that we just fail to even see its relevance or importance or just it, it doesn't stay uh, as important to us. So we just pray that you would cause us to be people who treasure the gift of your word. Help us now as we look at this passage. We pray that you'd open our eyes, that you'd help us to see and hear and understand and believe the good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all have parts of us that we wish were different. We all have parts of us, we all have things about us that we wish we could change. Sometimes those things are sort of surfacy, if we're honest. Sometimes those things are things on the exterior, you know, like our big nose or ears or our knobby knees or the weight that we wish we could lose that we can't seem to lose, uh, you know, things like that that are not unimportant, but that in the scope of things are not maybe as important as we sometimes feel like they are, but yet we want them to change, we want them to be different. Take that another level deeper, and we can all identify things about us that we would like to change in the form of uh, maybe habits that we have. You might be able to identify and say, you know, I, I know that I spend far more time stuck staring at a glowing rectangle in my hands than I ought to. You know, I know that my my sort of attention is captured by social media. I know that, you know, my interaction with whether it's social media or technology or entertainment, I know that just it's my temptation, my default is to just sort of be and remain sort of stuck in those things. I know that I compulsively check my email when I'm not working. 
I know that I tend to cut people off when they're talking, or I tend to procrastinate, or I'm not good at communicating or getting back to people, or I tend to hit the snooze button a lot in the morning, right? Some of those sort of habits that we have about ourselves that we look at and we say, man, I just, I, I wish that about me were different. I wish I could change. And then you take that another level deeper, and there is things that are sort of the deep waters inside of our heart and our soul of things that we wish were different things that we wish we could change about ourselves. For some of us, it's experiences that we've had that have fundamentally altered our view of ourself. Maybe that's a family of origin that you grew up in and the, the, the culture and the way that that family operated and the, the messages that you internalized and the things that you just fundamentally, intuitively believe about yourself or believe about others or believe about God because of your family of origin. It might be things like, Uh, an experience that you had, something that was done to you that has just fundamentally altered the way that you look at yourself and you struggle so hard to get past those things and to think differently than that. For some of us, it's patterns of belief or patterns of behavior or thoughts or fears that seem to sort of just control that we wish we could change. We wish we could change our, our thinking, our patterns of thought, and we simply don't find ourselves oftentimes with the strength to do it. We all have things that we look at in our lives and say, you know, I would give just about anything to change that part of me. We all have things that we could identify in us that are things that we wish we could change. And whatever that thing is, whether it's more surfacey or exterior or whether it's the deep stuff that goes on inside your heart, you can pretty much always find a book <laughs> that's been written that gives you some advice on how you can change that thing. And some of those are really helpful books, you know. Barnes & Noble has shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves worth of self-help books. And they're not all, you know, they're not all trash. There's things we can take and glean from those things. But what the, just the thousands of self-help books that have been written, what that shows us is it just reveals and exposes the fundamental desire of humans to change, to be better. It, it, it exposes the reality that we know that we need to change. We know that there's things about us that need to change. The good news that's presented to us in the Bible is that true and lasting change is possible. And that's what we're going to be thinking about here today, that true and lasting change is possible. Now, I think it's a little bit of a mistake to think about spiritual change as like, you know, a separate category or a separate bucket from other kinds of change. And the reason I think that is because we are both physical and spiritual beings. And so what that means is that the spiritual component to who we are cannot be simply separated out from everything else that is who we are. And so every single one of those areas where we would want to change, where we would want to see things different, there's a spiritual component to all of that. And there's actually so, only so much progress we could make if we don't address the spiritual component. And so what I want to do this morning is just think with you about the question, how do we experience spiritual change and transformation? How does that happen? That's going to be sort of the the main focus of our time together here today. So as we look at this passage, the first thing we're going to see is the spiritual condition of the disciples. And then we're going to secondly look at how spiritual change happens. So first, let's think together about the spiritual condition of the disciples. Now, as we've made our way through the book of Mark, we've seen many times that the stories that we encounter, the, the teachings of Jesus or the miracles or the, you know, whatever else it is, those are like self-contained units and they have meaning sort of just built into them. And there's things we can learn from every single one of them. And at the same time, we've also seen 
that so often there are layers of meaning to what, we're, what we read that can only be discovered by seeing how Mark has arranged this material together. And so what I want to do this morning is show you one more time how uh, Mark has purposefully arranged this material in order to uh, help us see some things. And so what I want to do is just kind of nerd out with you for a moment and show you how there is a sandwich that's created by two very unusual miracle stories. We read one of them this morning, but the other one is a passage we looked at just a few weeks ago where Jesus healed a man who was unable to speak and he was unable to hear. And it's just very, very unusual because Jesus didn't uh, typically heal this way. So he, he put his hands in the man's ears and he touched the man's tongue and he used his own saliva in the process and it just looks so strange and so different than any of the other miracle stories we see where Jesus simply speaks and someone becomes healed. And then today, you heard another one of those stories read where there's a the man who's blind and again, Jesus touches the organ that's in need of healing. He touches his eyes and he uses his saliva in the process And actually, one of the most unusual things about this story is that Jesus did this healing in two stages. He healed him partially, and then he healed him fully. And so you've got these two just bizarre-looking miracle stories. And I think that as we're reading the book of Mark, these sort of, they should stick out to us like a sore thumb. These look unusual. They should grab our attention. And as we look at them, what we see is that they form this sandwich And I'd like to sort of just show you what that sandwich is. So the first thing we see a couple weeks ago is that Jesus healed a man who was unable to hear. And then this morning, we see that Jesus healed a man who was unable to see. And then sandwiched right in the middle of that, Jesus has this interaction with his disciples where they're in the boat and they completely misunderstand the point. And Jesus asks them in verse 18, Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? So do you see that? Jesus healed a man who's unable to hear, healed a man who's unable to see, and sandwiched right in the middle of it is Jesus basically says to his disciples, you are unable to hear and unable to see. So this shows us something of the spiritual condition of these disciples. And what it shows us is that these healings are more than just healings. They are purposefully arranged in order to show us something of the spiritual condition of the disciples. And in seeing their condition, uh, there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is the disciples are afflicted by a kind of spiritual blindness and deafness. The disciples routinely fail to put together what is right in front of their faces. That's the bad news, that they have this kind of spiritual blindness and deafness. But there's also good news as well. The good news is that throughout the rest of the book, the disciples remain with Jesus. They stay with Jesus. They stay near to Jesus. The good news is that the disciples, for all of their failures, they have a sort of baseline openness to see and to hear and to understand and to believe the message of the kingdom. And so even though they're dense, even though they're slow to learn, Jesus has something to work with because they have a kind of baseline spiritual heart level openness to Jesus. And so that's good news for them, even though they completely miss the point so often. And even though they're shown here as being spiritually blind and deaf, the good news is that Jesus did not give up on them. 
And then in the same way, Jesus could heal the deafness and can heal the blindness, the physical deafness and physical blindness of these two men. Jesus can heal the spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness of his disciples. So there's bad news and there's good news. And together, these show us, this healing of the blind man shows us something of the spiritual condition of the disciples. But it shows us more than that. It shows us something about how spiritual change happens in the first place. How do Jesus' disciples go from where they are today in this passage, where they are, Jesus asked them, are you hard of heart? Don't you see? Don't you understand? Are you blind? Are you deaf? How do they go from where they are right now to where we know that they will end up? How do they end up being the kinds of people that will give their life for the sake of the gospel? How do they become the kinds of people that will write letters to the churches throughout the Roman Empire that end up being included in the Bible, (laughs) right? How do they go from spiritually blind and deaf to where we know they ended up? Seems like there's a total 180 in there. And the answer to that question uh, is important. How does this kind of significant spiritual change happen? I'll suggest this is how spiritual change happens. Spiritual change happens slowly over time, as we believe the gospel more deeply. Spiritual change happens slowly over time as we believe the gospel more deeply. So there's like a thousand caveats that I would really like to make about this whole subject of spiritual change and how people change and all of that. I'm not going to do that today. I just want you to sort of just give me, uh, just understand that what I'm, I'm not trying to say everything there is to say this morning about how people change or about how spiritual change happens. I'm not trying to say everything. I'm just trying to point out a few things that come out of this passage. So let's look at both sides of that together. So spiritual change happens slowly over time. As I mentioned, one of the most unusual and puzzling parts of this passage, this miracle story, is that Jesus healed this man in two stages. Puts his hands on his eyes and he says, do you see anything? And he says, well, yeah, you know, I kind of see they're people, but they look like trees. They're really fuzzy. And then Jesus finishes the healing. And it's the only place where Jesus does a two-stage healing. And so the question is, well, what in the world is happening here? One explanation is that it just didn't take, right? He, he, He gave it a good try and it didn't work. So he's like, well, I better try again. And he was able to, you know, muster up the power to finish the job the second time. And that would be a plausible explanation if, like, we didn't know anything else about Jesus' healing power, right? If we ignore everything we know to be true about Jesus, we could believe that. But we know that Jesus has healing authority. We know that Jesus himself has the power to speak and drive back the spiritual forces of darkness. He has the power to speak and reverse the effects of sin and to see life come where there is no life. We know that to be true about Jesus, and so it means that can't be the explanation for what we see. So why does Jesus heal in this two-stage kind of way? I think the key to understanding what's happening here is to look at what happens immediately after this. So Jesus heals this man in two stages, and then he and his disciples go up to this region uh, called Caesarea Philippi. And it's a region that is about 25 miles from where they are, so it's a good long day's journey up there. And while they're in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? So he's sort of asking, what are you hearing out there as far as popular opinions about who I am? And so they say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Other people say that you are Elijah. Other people say that you're one of the prophets. 
And there's like a whole, it's a whole nother thing to go into. Well, what does it mean that they think that he's John the Baptist who was recently killed? What does it mean that they think he's Elijah who lived like hundreds of years before Jesus? What does that mean? We're not going to go there today. They give Jesus the popular opinion that's sort of out there, sort of in the ether during that time about who people think Jesus is. And then Jesus turns the question on to them. Not in a, you know, like accusatory kind of way, but he asked them, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And he asked them to give an answer for themselves, not just for other people. And we saw that what they said, Peter spoke up, speaking for himself, and also as the, you know, sort of spokesman for the disciples. He spoke on behalf of the disciples and said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are God's deliverer. Now, this is a significant moment in the book of Mark because until this point, there's not been a single human who has correctly identified Jesus. We've seen Jesus' identity announced by Mark as the narrator. We've seen Jesus' identity announced by the voice of the Father speaking from heaven. We've seen Jesus' identity announced by demonic spiritual forces as they say, what do you want with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? We've never seen a human who's correctly identified Jesus as God's Messiah, as his deliverer, until this moment. And it's like, okay, we've just seen all this stuff about how blind and how hard-hearted and how sort of spiritually like dense the disciples are, and then they confess that Jesus is the Messiah, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is wonderful, right? They're finally turning the corner, they're finally starting to get it, and we could believe that if the book ended here. But the book doesn't end here. Jesus then goes on, After they correctly identify him, and it says in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is, the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. No misunderstandings. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So God himself is here in the flesh and Peter opens up his mouth and basically tells Jesus, you are not allowed to be that kind of Messiah. You're not allowed to be that kind of deliverer, Jesus. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so you see on the one hand, the disciples like totally get it. They understand Jesus is the Messiah. And at the same time, they totally misunderstand because they don't recognize what kind of Messiah he actually came to be. And so here's the connection between this healing of the blind man and Jesus' interaction with the disciples. Like the man Jesus healed whose sight was there but fuzzy, the disciples have some spiritual sight, but it's fuzzy. Right? This man who was healed says, like, uh, uh, you know, he, he doesn't have full sight. He doesn't have HD vision at this point. He's got enough vision to see that human beings are so distorted that they look like trees walking around. That's what he can see. And then Jesus heals him the rest of the way. So he has some kind of sight, but it's fuzzy, it's incomplete. And then the disciples have spiritual sight that is there, it's present, but it's fuzzy. It's incomplete. And so what we see is that the spiritual sight of the disciples is as fuzzy as the physical sight of that blind man who was healed in two stages. Does that make sense? So these two are set side by side to show us that the disciples, they kind of get it and they kind of don't get it. And it reinforces the point to us that spiritual change happens slowly over time. 
The disciples didn't just wake up one morning and they, they got everything. They've, at this point, been with Jesus for a significant amount of time, maybe years at this point, and they understand some things. They know enough to announce that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't know enough to know what kind of Messiah he's going to be. And so even the disciples, they understand his identity in part, and then they also don't understand. And so their understanding of who Jesus is, their spiritual change, their spiritual sight and understanding is a process that takes place over time. It doesn't happen just all at once. Their spiritual transformation was a process. And this is the exact same thing that's true for our spiritual growth and our spiritual transformation and our spiritual change. It doesn't just happen overnight. You cannot microwave spiritual growth. You can't microwave spiritual transformation. This is the way that God works on us is slowly over time. Now, there will be moments where the Spirit of God does something and there's a breakthrough in your life. There's maybe uh, something that you've struggled with for a long time that the Spirit of God takes away that desire completely and you can't explain it. Other times there's a healing or there's something that you have been wanting to change. God changes it in a moment. But even then, so often that takes place after sometimes years of wrestling and processing that with God and then he finally breaks through. So even then, there's still a process. This is the normal way that God changes us is slowly over time. And so if you're here this morning and you feel maybe discouraged by the pace of your spiritual growth, if you feel uh, maybe disheartened or sort of uh, dissatisfied with how quickly you're able to like pick things up and grow, and if you feel like, you know, at this point in my life, I didn't think I'd be struggling with the same thing anymore. At this point in my life, I thought I would have had this figured out or I thought I would have had that figured out. And if you're sort of feeling disheartened by the pace of your spiritual growth, friends, be encouraged that the disciples had God himself as they're in the flesh personal tutor for three years. And they still screwed up. And they still didn't understand. And it still took them years to be able to fully see and understand who Jesus was. This is the normal way that God changes us is slowly over time. We want the change to come fast, right? We want that. And it's good that we would want God to change those things. And God cares not only about the end result, he cares about the process, He cares about you in the midst of the process and communing with him all throughout the course of the process. This is how God changes us slowly over time. But spiritual change happens not only slowly over time, it happens as we believe the gospel more deeply. Sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that believing the gospel is really nothing more than sort of the bare minimum we need to be saved. You know, like the gospel is a pass or fail test. Do you believe the right doctrines? Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Do you believe that he was sinless? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Do you believe he died for your sin? And if you can sort of check all those things, that's like the bare minimum for you to get into the kingdom of God and to get saved. If you've been around Elmwood, you know we care deeply about what the Bible says. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. The idea that simply believing the gospel is like the bare minimum requirement to get into the kingdom of God, it's not untrue because what we believe does matter. It's just not entirely true. 
Yes, we are saved by believing the good news about Jesus. And do you know how we are transformed over time? By believing the good news about Jesus. <laughs> we are not only saved by the gospel, we are transformed and changed over time by believing the gospel more deeply. We never move on from the gospel to other things. The entirety of our life as followers of Jesus is moving deeper and deeper into trying and explore and mine the depths of the gospel that's already in front of us. And so we don't look at it and say, okay, you know, I was saved by sheer grace. It's of God's doing. It's got nothing to do with me. It's not about my performance. It's not about any of that. I'm saved by that. But then how I'm changed is I muster up every ounce of my strength and I try really hard and that's how I'm changed. Our effort is important, right? Our effort is really important, is a a key component of how God changes us. We are not transformed by something different than what saves us. We are both saved and changed, saved and transformed by believing the gospel more deeply. At this moment in their apprenticeship to Jesus, the disciples, they have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel is. In their minds, suffering and hardship and death are incompatible with their vision of what the Messiah, who the Messiah is going to be. They have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel is. And how they were changed over time, how they were changed over the long haul of their life, how they became, how they turned from who we see them to be in this passage to where we know they ended up, what changed them was coming to believe more deeply with every fiber of their being that Jesus is not only their conquering king, but also their suffering servant. That is what changed them as they believed the gospel more deeply. So we can just take Peter's life as an example. What changed Peter was believing the gospel. We see in this passage, Peter's telling Jesus he's not allowed to suffer. And then you read just, I don't know how long it was, maybe a year, maybe less, maybe more, in the book of Acts. God pours out his spirit, and now Peter's going around announcing, Jesus is the Messiah, the one who you crucified and killed, and who was raised on the third day. That's the Messiah. And all throughout the book of Acts, we see Peter himself announcing the good news that Jesus suffered and died. And so he does this 180. What changed is he came to believe the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is our suffering servant. We see later that Peter would write a letter to the uh, churches throughout the Roman Empire. They're experiencing a whole bunch of persecution. They're experiencing opposition for their belief in the gospel. And here, Peter's saying, Jesus, you're not allowed to suffer. Suffering is not a part of God's plan. And then in 1 Peter, he's writing to these Christians saying, guys, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. Don't be surprised by the suffering and the persecution and the opposition that you are experiencing as if something strange were happening. So he goes from saying, you're not allowed to suffer to saying, suffering is normal Christianity. You will be persecuted, you will suffer, you will be opposed for following Jesus. And what changed is that he began to believe the good news that Jesus is not just my conquering king, he's my suffering servant. He gave his life for me. 
And that is what changed Peter over the course of those years. And we could probably do the same thing looking at uh, the rest of Jesus' disciples. We could probably go around the room and share stories of how the same exact thing is true of us. We are changed by believing the gospel more deeply. This is why we gather every single Sunday. This is why we gather. We gather in order to rehearse the good news of the gospel. We come here and we, we, we pray together and we sing songs of worship and adoration to God. We hear scripture read out loud. We get to encourage one another mutually and enjoy conversation with each other. We get to sit under the teaching of God's word together. We get to do all of that. And this is a formative environment for us. We're week after week, slowly over time, we get to come rehearse the good news of the gospel that Jesus gave his life in place of ours. And because of what he's done, I've been forgiven. I've been given new life. And every single Sunday, we get to rehearse that good news together. And that's why we gather each Sunday to deepen our belief in the good news of the gospel. And every single week, there, there, there'll be things that maybe hit you a different way or strike you a different way. And you say, you know, I've known that for years and yet God sort of did something in me with that same thing I've known just in a unique way this Sunday. And so we gather to rehearse the good news and to remember and believe the gospel. That's why we scatter into relationships throughout the week. That's why we as a church, we do the best that we possibly can of creating environments where we can learn to grow in spiritual rhythms together. And we can learn how to do things like read the Bible and pray and do Sabbath and community and mission because all of those things are the things that God uses slowly over time to help us believe the gospel more deeply and to change us and transform us from the inside out. And so that's why we do what we do because spiritual change happens slowly over time as we believe the gospel more deeply. One of the formative practices that we do here each week at Elmwood that helps us believe the gospel more deeply is we come to the communion table. As we come to the communion table, there's a couple different sort of elements that are a part of of that journey of coming to the table. One is that we come before God and we confess our sin to him. We come before God and we confess the ways that we have, the things that we have done. We confess the things that we have left undone. We confess the ways that we have not loved God with our whole heart, mind, and strength. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We come and we confess, we acknowledge the sin and the idolatry and the brokenness that exists inside of our lives and we cast ourselves on his mercy. And then as we come to the table, having confessed our sin, we get to confess the good news of the gospel. That we don't come here in our own strength. We don't come here defined by those things that we've done, but by defined by who, what God has done for us. And we get to confess the good news together. And then we get to come receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And that's a practice that we do week after week after week after week. And slowly over time, that's how we believe the gospel more deeply is by coming to Christ at the table. It's one of the formative practices that we use here at Elmwood. And so as we come to the communion table today, I want to invite you to take that time of confession and reflection where you can bring anything you need to before God in these few moments of silence. And then we get to, again, come to the communion table and remember and celebrate Christ. So would you take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection, and then we will uh, join together in receiving Christ at the table.